The series we've been talking about is called The Main Thing. And uh, j- just to kind of, for those of you that might not have been part of those first couple of versions, um, one of the questions I felt uh, I wanted to probe and just kind of get to the bottom of is, what is the main thing about Christianity? Is there a main thing? Um, I've been a Christian most of my life, and I've been a pastor for a lot of it. And I can be very honest with you, I've heard all kinds of trends and teaching about what the new hottest thing is or the new the new thing is. And you hear all kinds of different people suggesting what they think the main thing is. And I love hearing what different people have to say about stuff. But what's most important to me is what does God say about it? And what does the Bible say about it? Is there, in fact, a main thing, a thing that rises above all other things? And um, I was very interested as I started getting into the study when we looked at what Moses said about the main thing was for him and what David said, what Jesus said, what what Paul said. Um, there's some common threads there. And so um, in an effort to try and get at that, we the, the, the thing for me is that the, the, the phrase we've been building around is that the main thing is for me and God to be inseparable. That's the main thing. That's what Moses said it was. He didn't want to go anywhere without God. David said this. David said the same thing. We talked about David a couple weeks ago. David just said the one thing I ask for is to be in God's presence all the days of my life. Jesus will we'll look at what he said on the cross when he he voiced pain on the cross, saying, you know, God, why have you abandoned me? Paul later on says the, the, the most important thing for him was to be found in Christ. More important than anything else, more important than education, success, money. So. Let's look at what Jesus said about that today. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46, this is Jesus um, at a point when he was hanging on the cross. And it's one of the few things he actually verbalized while he was on the cross. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation today. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 say this. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a, with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, what's interesting is that that wasn't just spontaneous words that Jesus came up with. I don't know if you know or not. He was actually quoting the opening line from one of David's psalms. So let me put this in context for you, and this will help us later, because what I discovered in reading this is I don't know that I've interpreted this scripture accurately throughout the years. It's kind of troubling if we say that God abandoned his innocent son in his worst hour of need. So what was Jesus really trying to draw their attention to? Let's look. Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. And then verses 22 through 24, you could read the whole psalm. It's a, it's a longer one, but I, 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 I kind of cropped it down a little bit to get the point. Here's what David said in the Old Testament, writing prophetically. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Have you ever asked God that? Like being honest. Like, God, why are you so far? You feel so far away from me when I need you the most. I can't feel you. Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. I hope you feel a little more normal now when you hear David, a man after God's own heart, wrestling with some of the same issues that you and I feel when we have unanswered prayer and we feel like we're going through it and we can't feel any relief. He says, yet, and that's an important word for all of us. I have these feelings. I'm going through this. However, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. Now this is David writing. Could Jesus have identified with all of those words when he was hanging on the cross? Here I am hanging here and everybody's mocking me, sneering at me, asking God to save me and they're not. Later on, it says, here's David writing, verse 22. If the Lord loves him so much, then let the Lord rescue him. 
But David says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to their cries for help. Now, understand what Jesus was likely doing while he was hanging on the cross. He wasn't necessarily indicating to his listeners that he was, in fact, abandoned by God. He was drawing their attention to a psalm that gave the whole story for what he was experiencing in that moment. I'll talk more about that in a second. But the main thing, and you know, it's the main thing we've been driving at. The main thing for Christianity is for me and God, for you and God to be inseparable. That's what God wants. That's what he ever, that's all he ever wanted. In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, you know what he wanted? He wanted to be inseparable with them. He came down to walk with them in the cool of the day, but Adam and Eve willfully chose to disobey God, and God had to remove them from his presence. And I'll say this a couple times this morning, but I want this to sink in. If you get nothing else, hear this. God doesn't abandon us. We abandon him. God's not in the business of abandoning people. As a matter of fact, we have to somehow reconcile statements where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. We have to somehow balance that out against what Jesus might appear to be saying. He says, God, why have you abandoned me? So either God abandons us or he doesn't. What do we do with all of that? The main thing is for me and God to be inseparable. That's all he ever wanted. And in heaven, that's what it's going to be. Ever since ever since the garden, God's been putting this plan into place to give you and I a chance to be inseparable with God. And through salvation, we come together, and we form union with God and we're one with him. Why would it be that after we've tasted of the goodness of salvation that we would crave to be separated from God again? I don't know about you, but the more that I get to know God, the more discontent I am in even the moments where I feel separated from him. The more that I taste of God, the more that I crave of his presence. That's where I like to camp out. That's where I like to live. That's where I like to be. And I recognize that that might sound foolish to many of us this morning. You say, I've never tasted of that. And you can't crave what you've never tasted. But friend, my hope for all of us is that we walk so closely to God that even the moment when there's something wrong in the relationship, we recognize it immediately and we correct it and we correct it. That's what I hear from Jesus on the cross. If there's ever been a person who walked the face of the earth who knew God and was inseparable, it was Jesus. You understand, Jesus had never been separated from his father, ever. Now, Jesus wasn't created. He always was. He existed right alongside God the Father. And up until the point when he submitted to God's plan to go to the earth, take on the form of a human being, live a perfect life, and become a sin offering for us, he had never been outside of heaven. He was always with God. And then he comes to earth, takes the form of a man, lives a sinless life, hangs on the cross. And as the weight of all of the sin of the world is placed upon Jesus, a curtain, as it were. Feels like he feels a separation. From God. It's an amazing thing that happens. The big idea this morning is simply this. The big idea is that God allowed Jesus to briefly experience what it felt like to be separated from his father's presence. And I I have to say this parenthetically, and, and I want you to draw this distinction in your mind or else our theology will get really tricky here. There's a difference for me being separated from God's presence and God abandoning me. how to illustrate this real quick before I go on with this, because I don't want you to miss this. And if I have to cut this short today, I will, but I want to make sure that I don't confuse you here. Um, 
this is just coming to my mind. Uh, so the other day I stopped to get gas in the car and my son was in the car seat in the back. And when he's right now, he's really attached to daddy. And any time that daddy's not within eyesight, my son starts to act as though he feels like I abandoned him, which is in one way kind of cool. I'm glad he likes that. On the other hand, it's kind of stressful because you feel like you have to sneak around the house all the time to get stuff done. I get out of the car. I close the door. I can see him. He can't see me. And as I'm pumping the gas, he's coming to pieces. Daddy, 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 where are you, daddy? Where are you, daddy? And I went back and I finally rolled down the window so he could see me through the back window. He thought I had abandoned him when, in fact, I was only separated from him by a pane of glass. You understand there's a difference between being separated from God's presence and God abandoning us. But they feel very much the same, don't they? They feel very much the same. God allowed Jesus to briefly experience what it felt like to be separated from his father's presence. Now, God never, this is the case I'm building this morning. I'm building the case that God never actually abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour. Nevertheless, Jesus tasted of the terror That results when sin isolates us from God's presence. May we all learn to crave, pursue, and preserve the uninterrupted bliss of God's companionship. Just like Jesus did. What I see from Jesus that I want to emulate in my life is the moment he sensed a separation from God's presence. He recognized it. And he, he did what he thought he needed to do to try and reconcile that. So a couple things we need to understand this morning. Number one, number one, God's presence is the absolute opposite of God's absence. Just a quick way to define it. Number one in your notes, God's presence is the absolute opposite of God's absence. Now, what do you mean by that, Pastor? There's just some things that God's not involved in. He is absent from sin being probably the biggest category. God has no part with sin. It is contrary to him. And there are some things that you will engage in in life that you will choose to get involved in that God is not involved in. He is absent from. And when you give yourself to those things, you will feel a separation from God's presence. Now, here's the question that I had in trying to develop this statement. How can God be both present everywhere and absent simultaneously? If we say that God is omnipresent, which is one of those big words we use, which means everywhere present. He is everywhere. He sees everything and all the time. There's no place that he doesn't see. There's no rock I can hide under and, and, and be separated from God. How can we say that God is a God that's omnipresent, but he's also absent? And the way that I would attempt to answer that is this way. It's very much possible to be present at or aware of something without being an active participant in something. You can be present, but not a participant. That makes sense. God sees us, the Bible says, as we sin, though he's not involved in the sin. He is aware when you and I do wrong, though he has no active participation in. Um, example, some of you know that um, for a couple years, I sold cars. I, I sold General Motors cars. I sold Mazda cars. And when I got hired there, I was the only Christian in the new car side of the dealership. There was like I don't know, 21 or 22 salespeople and managers that I worked with, only Christian. And it was also one of the few environments I've been in my life where I found it extremely difficult and very isolated relationally from everybody. I didn't feel like I had a good, strong friendship connection with anybody. And I craved that. I had a burden for the people that I worked with. I wanted them to know the God that I knew. I wanted them to know the God of the Bible to be their everyday God. It was very, very, very difficult. Many of you have had this experience when you just don't have much in common spiritually With people, it's very difficult to find an avenue into their world, especially some of the topics and the conversations that they got into. I noticed every day when it was slow around the dealership that everybody would kind of migrate. You know, we had the manager's desk, which was a big round 
kind of elevated platform in the middle of the dealership where my two managers sat. And I noticed that when things got slow, all the guys kind of tended to migrate towards the desk. And so for me, if I wanted to get to know these guys, that's kind of where I needed to be. And so I always felt like the outsider, but I decided to, and I kind of got picked on a little bit because I was never part of their little circle, the water cooler, as it were. So I, I, I finally decided, okay, I'm going to try and get to know these people a little bit better, and I guess that's the place I need to go. So next time it got slow and everybody came to the desk, I joined the circle. And uh, I was there for a few minutes. I didn't have much to say. Um, and at first the conversation was kind of benign and ordinary, but then it turned a little uh, uncomfortable for me. Because, you know, it's a whole bunch of fellows who didn't know Jesus like I knew him. And, of course, the conversation turned to women. And it got to a point where I just couldn't be there anymore. The way we were talking about them and their lives and the women that they were with that weren't their wives and their trip to Vegas they were going to take that nobody knew about. And, after, you know, and every woman that would come through the door, they would start. And I finally, I just, I got to a point whenever that part of the conversation started up, I didn't announce anything. I didn't, I just turned and I, I walked away. I just excused myself from the conversation. Um, and I know at first they really started to pick on me about that. But after a couple of weeks, um, whenever the conversation would start to turn, they'd see me start backing away. They say, oh, no, and they called me Admiral. I don't know why, but they called me the Admiral. And so they said, oh, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We got to change the conversation. We can't, Admiral, come on back in the circle, come on back. You know, they said, we won't talk like that. We won't talk like that. And what happened was they noticed that even though I was present, I didn't want to be an active participant in stuff that I didn't want corrupting my spirit. Because you know how easy it would be for me as a guy to just stand in that circle and let my boundaries slip and wander? You know, I'm no different from any other man. You put me in an environment that, like that long enough and you make one little compromise, I'm going to go down the same path as anybody else. And I had to protect my heart. Now, some of you might have handled it differently. Some of you might have spoken to it. And that's your prerogative to do. I didn't feel released from God to speak at that point in it. Um, but I thought my absence would speak as loudly as my presence in that environment. And what I found was they got to a place where they valued me enough as a person that they were willing to adjust their behavior to keep me present. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. Do you love God enough you're willing to adjust the things in your own heart to keep him present? Or are you completely okay with him being absent for a while while you go and do what you think you need to do or have a conversation you feel like you need to have? If God can't sit through your conversation, you probably shouldn't be having that one. How much of a relationship would you have with your spouse if you, you know, I'm camping on this point a little bit, I realize, but I feel like I maybe need to drill a little deeper here. So let's say, for example, one of the, one of the before we had Chase and Kendra and I used to go out for dinner every now and again. Um, together, just the two of us. We don't go out to restaurants much with Chase right now. That's an adventure in and of itself. Most of the restaurants have asked us not to come back. But, um, and that's just because of my behavior. But uh, <laughs> when we used to go out, I don't know if you've ever had these conversations, if you've dated somebody or you're, you're married, you had these conversations. Um, you want to go out to eat tonight, says one spouse. The other one, sure. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? And that always means we always have an idea in our mind, but we're just not going to come right out and say it. I'm like, we've been married almost 15 years. Can we just figure this out? Well, what if my wife said, you know, I really want to go to Ruby Tuesdays. And I say, well, I really want to go to, uh, I don't know, Don Pablo's. And she says, uh, well, no, I really want to go to Ruby Tuesdays. I really, I really want to go to Don Pablo's. And I say, you know what, I've got a solution. I will drop you off at Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs> give you some money. Go in there, knock yourself out. I'm going to drive over to Don Pablo's, have myself a quick quesadilla, however you say that, yeah, quesadilla. 
enjoy myself, and I'll come back and pick you up, and then we'll ride home. And let me ask you something. Suppose I went through with that. Dropped her off at Ruby Tuesdays. I went over to Don Pablo's. I came back, pick her up. What do you think the conversation is going to be like in the car on the way home from Ruby Tuesdays? There going to be a distance there. So why are we stumped or confused when we think, you know, God, I want to have a conversation right now that you can't be part. I'm going to drop you off right over here. I'm going to go over here and do my thing. And then later on, we'll make nice. If you wouldn't settle for that in a relationship, why should God settle for that with us? Now, the beautiful thing about God that's different from us is that he doesn't carry grudges and he's quick to forgive. But if you want to be inseparable with God, you best eat at the place he wants to eat at. And you best talk about the things that he can be present in. And you best engage yourself in the activities that God can be present. There's just certain things he cannot be part of. He sees us as we do it. But I want to be so aware of the absence of God. That it makes me think more carefully about things and decisions I make before that I do them. And I hope that's the place that you want to live or at least the place that you want to get to. The presence of God is the absolute opposite of God's absence. Now, here's my question. I'm going to have to split this into two parts. There's no way. And it's all right. I don't want to rush through this. Here's the question that I had in this passage. I want to ask you and I want you to wrestle with this for me for a second. Did God really abandon Jesus? I want you to think about that. Did God really abandon Jesus when Jesus needed him the most? And I've heard it taught, and I've taught it this way, that when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I've taught, I've read, I've heard taught to me that what was happening was all of heaven turned their back on Jesus because he took sin upon him, not within him, but he took sin upon him. Now, I've heard that taught. Interesting that you can't make a biblical. We don't have that nice little Bible verse that says this is what actually happened. All heaven turned their back on Jesus. That's just how we interpreted that. But if God really abandoned Jesus, I have some tough questions for God. Because here is his own son. I'm not his I'm not his one and only son. Now, I'm an adopted child. His own son. Here's another difference between me and Jesus. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was innocent, right? I hope you believe that. If you're saved, you have to believe that. He was innocent, crucified, being executed for a crime he didn't commit. Being mocked by the people standing around him who were saying, if he really were the son of God, then he'd be being rescued. He must not be. Mocking him. Sneering at him. And here is Jesus, his own son, crying out to God for help. Now, if you're telling me that God will abandon somebody in Jesus's condition, I'm terrified for what that means for me. Because that means then that God does abandon his kids when they need him the most in their darkest hour. Even if they're innocent. And that's not really the God I thought I had signed up to surrender my life to serve. So I have to ask, did God really abandon Jesus? Did he really turn his back on him? And if we say that he turned his back on him because of his sin, then we've got a whole bunch of other Bible verses that says that God doesn't turn his back on people when they sin, but it does affect the relationship. You read in Isaiah chapter 59, you can read about it. God says, I see you when you sin, but I'm not listening to your prayers. There's a difference. 
So what really happened? Did God really abandon Jesus when he needed him most? I have to say in light of all the Bible, no, I don't think that God abandoned his son. But if you understand what a sin offering was, like in the Old Testament, they had to kill an animal every time that they sinned. And a sin offering, and Jesus became that for us, what actually would happen is part of, and I won't go through the whole ordeal for you, but part of what would happen is when, you know, the person who would bring this offering to a priest, bring an animal to the priest, before that they would kill the animal, they would put their hand on the animal's head, which was a symbolic act of, it was symbolically transferring the guilt of that person onto this innocent animal. The animal always had to be perfect, had to be innocent. And they would put that, and at that moment, we would, you know, it was like they transferred the sin of that animal, then they would kill the animal. So when Jesus hung on the cross, what was happening in that moment was all of the sin that had already happened, and all the sin that you and I, and all the sin for the billions and billions and billions of people who would live was being placed upon Jesus, not within him, upon him. He had to in order to pay the price for it. And what he was experiencing in that moment for the first time in his existence was that veil of separation from God's presence. It probably very much felt to him as though God was abandoning him. But then why did he say what he said? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's what I believe, and this is, this, I had to do some digging. Here's what I believe was going on here. Keep in mind, Jesus' body was in a very weakened condition while he was on the cross. He was, his, his heart was suffering. He could hardly breathe. Those of you that have done studies about the crucifixion, you understand him being able to preach a message at this point was physically impossible for him. But it was not uncommon for a teacher of the law to, to their listeners who would have had the psalms pretty much committed to memory, they didn't have them by chapter and verse at that point, to start a psalm and have them know exactly what he was talking about. And so he musters enough breath to say the beginning words of this particular psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting word for word from David and directing their attention to what the psalm said. And in, the, and in the moment, he's speaking to people who are saying there, you can't be the son of God or else he would have saved you. And he speaks to them an answer from the Old Testament about what was really going on in that moment. So he gets the first few words out. And what they would know that he was talking about was Psalm 27, where it says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help every day? I call to you, but you don't answer. Yet you're holy. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. Everyone who sees me mocks me. And it would start to make more sense. He's talking. He's fulfilling this prophetic word that David had. And that psalm ends this way. He has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. What I believe was happening here. Jesus was very much experiencing the terror of being separated from God's presence. That's what he felt in his body. But his spirit reminded him that on the other side of this curtain of sin is my God waiting to raise me from the dead waiting for that opportunity. Friend, if you're living in sin this morning, there's a separation between God's presence. He hasn't abandoned you. He's simply waiting on the other side of that veil of sin for you to reach through that and say, God, please forgive me. He's waiting to give you new life again, to raise you up on the other side of that. Because if we say that God abandoned his son in his own time of need, then what hope is there for any of us when we really need God? If there's ever a person that should not have been abandoned, it was Jesus. And I don't believe that God abandoned him at all. I do believe very much so that he felt for a moment what we feel like when sin separates us from the presence of God. Very much so. Let's just go, we'll conclude with with point number two today. The most terrifying consequence of sin, this might be a subjective opinion to me, but I hope that maybe this settles into your heart, is that it separates us from God's presence. 
That to me is the most terrifying consequence of sin. It separates me from the intimacy of God's presence. Now, I fully recognize, again, if you've never experienced what we mean when we talk about God's presence, then a lot of this doesn't make a whole lot of sense yet. I recognize that it couldn't possibly make sense. But for many of us, we have tasted what it's like to be in the uninterrupted, undiluted presence of God. And it is the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing I've ever experienced in my whole life is being in the presence of God. When I'm in the presence of God, I don't become perfect, but it seems like sin is a thousand miles away. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm not worried about my enemies. When I'm in the presence of God, I'm not struggling with my identity. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel depressed. All I feel is the loving, merciful, wonderful presence of God near me. That's what it feels like. And that's even a horrible explanation. That's a watered down. I don't have words to talk about what it feels like. But I don't want anything to separate me from that. But the Bible tells me very specifically that the most terrifying consequence of sin is that separates me from God's presence, both temporarily and it can do it eternally, too. You understand that sin is what will keep us from being able to spend eternity with God in heaven. It's a terrible consequence of sin, even though sin on the front end seems right and pleasurable and to make you happy. It's available. It's accessible. Sometimes it even seems like it's consistent with what God wants. That's how the enemy started off with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you can't? No, he would want you to have this. Most terrifying consequence. And there's this graphic verse that explains it. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this. Don't you realize, this is Paul writing to Christians. Don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Have you thought about that? I don't want to be the part that he has to uh, remove. <laughs> Don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, listen what he asks, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Do you understand? I'm, I want to try and get this. I want to be appropriate here, but do you understand the context of what Paul's talking about here? He's saying essentially that what happens is when I get saved, I enter into a union. The, the, you know, Jesus describes himself as the groom and us as the bride. Why do you think God hates the idea of divorce? Because he looks at our relationship as a marriage and he doesn't want us to be divorced. He doesn't say he hates the people that go through divorce. He just says he hates what it represents. Because it means a, a dissolving of a relationship that was supposed to be forever. And he doesn't want our relationship to look. In fact, he wants the world to be able to look at our marriages and know more about God. How crazy is that? I thought about that this morning. I won't call anybody out, but I thought when I, I, I thought about what I, I learned a little bit about God this morning when I saw a husband and wife. I won't call them out. And I said, "Why don't you turn around and, and greet somebody?" They turned to each other and gave each other a kiss. In church, and why not? I said, "Those two really love each other. They don't care who knows it. That's how God feels about me. How He feels about you. He loves. He doesn't care who knows it." But here's what Paul's saying: When you come to relationship with God and you have a salvation experience, you have joined yourself together as husband and wife. Sort of. He says, if you were married, would you bring a prostitute as a third party into that relationship? Absolutely not if you want to live. Right? In fact, he says, and, he, and, and science would tell you this, biology, you know, all of our doctors and nurses in the house would tell you, what he's saying is if one partner in that marriage relationship is sleeping with a prostitute, it's as though the other person is. Because of how that all works sexually. 
He says, so what you're doing when you make yourself as a Christian a partner with sin is you're making sin your prostitute and you're having relations with sin and bringing that into your relationship with God and God says that doesn't work. He can't be part of that. He won't be part of that. It separates you from the one that you're in love relationship with. Now, if our earthly marriages would not be able to tolerate such an arrangement, why do we think somehow that God just overlooks that? He doesn't. Jesus realized when he hung there on the cross, there are some terrifying consequences of sin that rattled him to his very core, and it separated him from the intimate presence of God. Nothing will create a feeling of separation between God and me faster than sin. Sin offends our holy God. Sin erects a barrier between man and God. If heaven seems distant from you, It's because sin has hung a curtain of separation between you and God because God is nowhere present in sin. For us to choose sin is to reject God's life of purity and holiness. You cannot achieve a greater measure of God's presence while simultaneously engaging in sin. Even though Jesus very much felt the separation between himself and his dad, God never abandoned him. God simply allowed Jesus and his humanity to experience the sense of divine abandonment that we as humans feel even in our darkest hours and especially in our sin. But he stood by as Jesus' human body was put to death in order that he could raise him back to life. Here's the hope for all of us. God doesn't abandon us, even in our sin. Instead, he waits for us to invite him into our lives in order to put sin to death and give us new life. And this is where I want, we'll land this here. We'll We'll pick this part up next week. I just feel like I need to very specifically make sure I'm crystal clear on this. If God's doing in your heart what I hope that he is, I hope that over the course of this study, you've at least at some point said, I want to be closer to God today than I was yesterday. And I want to be closer to him tomorrow than I am today. And I'm not going to sit back idly by. I'm going to seize this. I'm going to go after this. I'm going to do something about this. Whether you've walked with God for one minute or for 90 years, I hope that there's still a part in you. If you've tasted of the God of the Bible, the God that I know, the God that I want you to know, then there's part of you that is still hungry and thirsty for more of him in your life. And I will tell you one thing that will stunt that process faster than anything else is sin. And I want to be more specific, your sin. I know a lot of people who get angry about sin, but it's not their own sin. They're mad about everybody else's sin. They are fed up with this sin and that sin and other sin. And my thing is fine. Be fed up with it as long as you are as fed up with your own sin as you are with someone else's. Jesus said, you know, if you want to start You know, getting splinters out of other people's eyes, you best get the two by four out of your own first. I don't know if you've ever had a splinter in your eye. I haven't. I've had splinters. And when I've had someone else help me remove them, I want them to be seeing clearly. I don't have time to develop this next thought, but this is all I tell you. If you and I are living in a very precarious time in the history of this nation, and there is all kinds of sinful agenda that is winning. And if you and I are going to be able to do surgery, it starts in our own heart. We don't need a bunch of people running around with two-by-fours thinking we can pull splinters out of things. If you and I are going to be capable to be entrusted by God to bring a move of holiness and righteousness and restoration and salvation back to this country, it starts with you and I letting God do surgery on our own hearts first and being as fed up with our own sin and our own pride and our own arrogance and our own unforgiveness and our own grudges and our own selfishness as we are about every other agenda that's out there. True repentance, true holiness starts with me and it starts with you. But I'll tell you what, could you imagine what God could do with a holy, pure church that loved nothing but God, 
and hated only sin. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? I want you to be able to recognize God's presence so realistically in your life that the moment that he and you have even a little bit of a veil of separation, that right, right away, you say, God, forgive me, cleanse my heart. I want to move back to where you are. And the God that I know, I've quoted this verse earlier, the God that I know says this, you draw near to me, and I, not I might, I will draw near to you. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you that you don't abandon us. But God, we have to be honest, and Jesus was being very honest. He knew what it felt like to experience separation from your presence. And God, it feels like an abandonment. Forgive us for sometimes going days, weeks, months before we even realize that there's a separation there. I pray your presence becomes so real and so personal and so intimate with each and every one of us that the moment that we have strayed even a degree to the left or to the right, that your Holy Spirit convicts us and makes us aware of the error of our way so that we can do it quickly and correctly, that we can repent and ask you to, to restore to us the joy of our salvation, the intimacy of your presence. I don't want to live a life where my name might be in your book, but you and I are pretty far apart. I want to enjoy your presence now. That's what I want more than anything else. I want to pause here for a moment with it while everybody's got their head bowed and their eyes closed. If you're here this morning and you, you know for sure that you're not right with God, and what I mean by that is that you've never, you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never surrendered your life to him, you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, you've never chosen him to be your Lord and your Savior, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. And I want to be very clear. The Bible says what you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You have to confess it and you have to believe it. You're confessing what you believe and you're believing what you confess. That means I can't do it for you. Your friend can't do it for you. Your church can't do it for you. It's not about me baptizing you in water or giving you a membership card or having you fill out paperwork. It is a decision that you and only you can make. And all you have to do to bring to the table is to believe those things about God to be true. Believe that God exists, that he had a son named Jesus who died in your place on the cross and that he rose from the dead. You also have to believe that you need Jesus. You have to believe that this person that you are as good or as bad as you think that you are is incomplete without Christ. And that you need somebody to save you from you, to save you from sin. The good news, friend, is that you don't have to earn it, buy it, barter for it. You just have to accept it. That's all. How do I do it, Pastor? You confess, you make a simple prayer just like this. You can own this prayer for yourself. You can say it right in your seat. You can just say, Dear Jesus, please forgive me because I've been living life my own way. I've sinned against you. I've done life my own way. I've disobeyed you. I've made choices that you couldn't be a participant in. Please forgive me today. Come into my heart. Change me forever. God, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe in you. Holy Spirit, I believe in you. Now come into my life, take residence inside of me and change me from who I am to who I can be. I choose you as my Lord, I choose you as my Savior. It's that simple. It's that simple.